This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, trust is at the core, as Carol said, of yes. so many conversations we have around business, around institutions, around relationships uh, these days, professional and personal. And there are these moments where everything seems to collide. We talk a lot about business schools. Yeah. We talk, uh, at my behest, a lot about private equity and investing, uh, and we love a good book. And so who better to talk to but Joel Peterson? He is the chairman of JetBlue Airways. He's also on the faculty at Stanford Graduate School of Business, uh, a place where Carol and I have hung out before as well. He's here with us in New York City to talk about his book, The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great. Joel, great to have you with us. Great to be with you, Jason. All right. So let's start with this notion of why this feels so important right now. Trust has eroded. Why? It's eroded in society, not just in businesses and families, uh, kind of the contract between us as human beings. If you look at Congress, it's fundamentally dysfunctional today. People don't trust each other. They're toxic relationships. So the question is, can you do anything about that? Can you rebuild trust? And are there laws and principles? Or is it just this fuzzy feel-good thing that comes and goes? And my thesis is you can really do a lot about it. Well, you can build trust. You know, t- how do you do that? How do you do that? Especially in a society where I feel like uh, it's not valued as much as it used to be. And there's not a lot of c- accountability uh, for those who do you know, bad things. There, there actually is a lot of accountability from each of us. I mean, if you think about the people you trust in your life, uh-huh. You hold them accountable, and you hold them accountable for delivering on promises. And those are the people you trust in your life. So we sense that we don't trust as much. We, we pick up on that. Right. Uh, and, and I think there is a crisis of, of trust. And so you are intimately familiar with so many companies and chief executives. And, you know, you talk about Steve Jobs in your book and, and, and a lot of other folks. Who's been good at building it? that we would know in sort of a corporate setting? Uh, Howard Schultz. Yeah. Um, uh, Mark Benioff. Interesting. Um, and what is there, is there something that is... Like a commonality a, between yeah, them. Yeah, what's the thread? Well, I think, I think if you actually go in and read the 10 laws, you'll see that they respect others. They get people on the same page. They communicate, and they communicate bad news as well as good news. It's not just spin. People are getting really good at picking up on spin. People are smart. The newest employee, the one that is sitting out at the reception, picks up on spin. And so you just can't fool people. Well, I think about it when we have conversations. (laughs) I'm not going to point any fingers, but you can tell when you're kind of digging deeper and someone's just truly just talking with you versus, okay, these are my talking points and I'm just, I don't care what you ask me, but I'm just going to go right there. And it's, but it's amazing. And I, I do blame media to some extent that people have become so glued to those talking points. Uh, and so, you know, I, I look forward to a world where we get kind of away from that. Yeah. I think media does have a role. I think social media has a role too. Yeah. I think people are meaner on social media than they would ever be right. in talking to people. And so I think people become wary. They become nervous. 
cautious? You know, I think this is an interesting point. There was a friend of mine, younger colleague, actually has gone off to get uh, an MBA and was talking to me about how it's going. And I, she said, you know, I'm starting to think about, you know, where I want to work. And I said, go find an organization that you like and an individual whose organization, the CEO or founder, that you respect. And I do feel like there's a younger generation that increasingly that's kind of their number one or among their top priorities when looking for where they want to work. I always tell my students, find a mentor. Mm -hmm. And even if they don't pay you, be happy to be learning from a mentor. It's really the greatest gift early on in your career. And what about restoring trust? Because I feel like in so many cases, institutionally especially, we need to be restoring. How hard is it? Really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. So there's kind of two sorts of breaches. One is where somebody just doesn't deliver on what you thought. That may be your fault for not describing cleverly or carefully what you expected. It may be that you didn't measure it along the way. You didn't give them feedback. It could be an intervening variable. And my view on those kinds of betrayals, if you want to call them that, are that you fix it immediately. You talk with them. You have a regular feedback session. This idea of a a once-a-year performance review doesn't cut it. Right, exactly. So if you, if you really want to have a high-trust relationship, you have immediate feedback. Then there's the worst kind of betrayal where somebody has actually decided that they're going to cheat you. Right. And my experience with those is get the heck out. Right. Get right. away from them. and Just break you know, it in Run as far as you can away. Run as far as you can <laughs> and don't look back and don't relive it. You know, I give the example in the book of what Cortez did at Veracruz where he burned the ships yeah. so that people couldn't get back on the ship. Right. You know, if you've ever been betrayed, the tendency is to want to get back on the ship right. and keep reliving it and figuring it out. And that's toxic. Sometimes you've got to well, burn the ship. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And I think it's a relevant read because you talk about how this provides a competitive edge if you figure it out. So I think very, very timely. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. It's, it's yeah. a great book. Joel Peterson, he's the author of The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great. Look forward to visiting with you uh, in the not-too-distant future out at Stanford. When it's time to change, you've got to rearrange who you are and what you're gonna be. Uh, change certainly in the air, changing jobs, changing your skills. We've got it all. Marty Chavez sat down for a big, big, big exclusive interview with our own Shanali Basik. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. So Traders Who Code yes. was a program you built, that's, right? That's, uh, it's something that I worked on with many people. It was a natural evolution. Can you survive on Wall Street without knowing how to code today? It's like writing an English sentence. <laughs> it's an important skill. And at the same time, most of us are not professional authors or novelists or journalists. Right? But writing an English sentence is important. I would say the same thing about coding. Understanding the algorithmic way of approaching problems is really important for everybody to get. And that's Marty Chavez speaking exclusively to Shanali Basik on Bloomberg Television. Earlier, he is a subject of fascination for a number of reasons. Shanali joins us on the phone from New York City in our studio here. Sri Natarajan, finance reporter for Bloomberg, covering all things Goldman. Shanali, I want to start with you. Uh, that was relatively provocative, what Marty had to say. Remind us who he is. So Marty joined Goldman a long time ago in the 1990s when trading with King. And he was one of the people that really built a lot of the trading um, technology infrastructure that you see at Goldman right now. Uh, there was a joke he had on a Goldman podcast that 
uh, but he was serious. They had a 25-year-old birthday party for one of their uh, technolo- some of their technology that they built uh, earlier on while he was there. So he rose to become CFO, and then he uh, ran technology at one point, and most recently he co-led the trading uh, the security division. I mean, this is a big deal, um, uh, Shri, to hear this individual, particular individual, in terms of what he built at Goldman, say this. Yeah, look, no one can accuse Marty of trying to make friends with old school traders. He's always (laughs) had this persona of get on with the computers or get out of here. In fact, many years ago, even before he became CFO, there was this big town hall at Goldman where he essentially said, either you need to know how to instruct computers or collaborate with computers, or I will personally make sure that you're out of a job at Goldman. You can be guaranteed that it annoyed a lot of people, you know, back then. But maybe the delivery was too direct. But was but he spe- right? Yeah, but he's speaking to the future direction of the industry. He's speaking to where the industry is headed. And look at uh, look at his last job at Goldman as one of the co-heads of trading. That that market itself has been transformed in the last decade or so, where you have to figure out bringing bringing new electronic tools. That is what is taking over that industry, and traders have to adjust to that new reality. So uh, this is this is the Wall Street where engineers are starting to gain ascendance, and uh, traders have to keep pace with that. Jason, I think our time at you know Columbia Business School, right? We talk so much about the role of technology now in the business community. Yeah. I mean, it's everywhere, obviously. So, Shanali, tell us more about this conversation i mean he's he's a fascinating character and interesting and unique uh, on wall street in many ways or certainly not your typical uh wall street guy uh, tell us more about it so another thing that really struck me in the interview was remember marty's leading goldman sachs at the end of the year right his friends are like peter Thiel and myron Scholes of the black Scholes method right you can't confuse him for an average trader like sridhar was saying But really, my favorite part of the whole interview was what he was saying about what it was like growing up at Goldman Sachs as one of the only openly gay people in the 1990s, and also as a Latino when many people were not very diverse at Goldman back then. Right, and he he talked uh, about that, and that's an important thing to remember, Shri, because Wall Street, I think it's safe to say, Still a lot of white dudes working on Wall Street. Things have changed a bit, but this seems to be something that David Solomon is at least trying to change a little bit or says he's trying to change. Is he being successful? And how big of a deal of it is it for Goldman that you have a guy like this, like Marty, uh, saying peace out? I mean, you got You have to think about just a few months back when all the bank CEOs were paraded in front of Congress. You remember when uh, lawmaker after lawmaker was asking them about diversity, and it wasn't a great look. You could sort of all all of the CEOs sitting there fit into that one bucket, and that is a big issue for Wall Street. Goldman, much like every other bank, says it is doing a lot about diversity and inclusion, but this is not a change that will be visible within six months or a year or two years of someone's tenure. It will take years. At the bottommost rungs, you are seeing the new intern classes, the new analyst classes, where the split is fine and there are no issues there. But it's about the highest levels of Wall Street where it will take a lot of 
time for that change to filter through. And we can only hope that when all of these executives talk about wanting to establish that change, wanting to make sure that they take care of diversity, it begins to show through in the results in the years ahead. Right, because it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of focus and a lot of actions. Like, it's much easier to do it on lower levels, but to bring all of those individuals along so that you do indeed have ultimately a diverse workforce at the higher levels uh, of these banks. I mean, we've been talking about doing this, and we've heard you know, CEOs talk about the importance of this for years, but you've really got to almost, I dare say, a quotas or something, but there needs to be a really concerted effort tree to make it happen. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the idea of a quota, that, that almost sounds radical, but perhaps you need a big radical step to set the ball rolling till it becomes natural, till it becomes second mm-hmm. nature. Maybe you need to force some of the change. And so, Shanali, last word to you. I mean, it's interesting to think about what he's going to do next. What did he have to say about that? So, very interesting in classic um, Marty fashion. He said that what he wants to do is focus not only on programmable money, but something he calls programmable life, which I'm not really quite sure what that means yet. But um, uh, it'll be interesting to see him branch out beyond finance in to uh, maybe not even technology, but right. maybe something with biosciences where his um, where his heart used to be. Well, right, and, and, and notab- investing in programmable life. Right, and notably, one of the things hmm. he said, Tree, was that basically he wanted to kind of get out of Wall Street and everything that it represents in some ways. Right, he wants to move out west, and I think programmable life is just a highfalutin way of saying he wants to invest in tech that's transforming the biotech industry. But also, let's not, if I can quickly jump in, let's not forget that he is going to be teaching a class at Stanford, and he says the working title right now for the class uh, that will start in spring is uh, How Software Ate Finance. Wow. All right. I want to take that class. Yeah. Well, maybe you can audit it. Yeah, we should do that. All right. Uh, A great interview. Shanali Basik, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from New York City. And Tree Natarajan, finance reporter for Bloomberg, covering all things Goldman. He was here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you both so much for the great interview and the great context. Tell me why you cry. Yeah, why or why? Buy or buy Monsanto. It's a feature story in the magazine this week online and at Bloomberg.com. Tim Lowe is healthcare reporter, staying up late for us uh, here at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone from Munich. I understand you have a young one, so you don't sleep anymore anyway. So, uh, And you're not out at the club. <laughs> also with us is Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. This is a great deep dive uh, into what's going on at Bayer. Um, talk to us a little bit, uh, Tim, about this story. Right, because it was a big purchase for the company. Absolutely, it was the, in fact, the biggest purchase for a German company in history. Uh, they spent sixty-three billion dollars on Monsanto, and two weeks—I'm sorry, two months after the deal closed, the first lawsuit in a California trial, they lost that, and here we are a year later. And buyer's market value is $68 billion, which is essentially they've lost the whole value of the company they bought. That's not exactly how you uh, expect acquisitions to go, uh, Tim. And it really comes down to this question of, like, what, what was the CEO thinking? 
Yeah, well, there are uh, a couple things. So, so Bayer is a kind of a double-headed company these days in pharmaceuticals and in uh, agriculture. And at the time that this whole deal was cooked up back in 2016, uh, the agriculture industry had a lot of consolidation going on. Dow and DuPont were getting together, and then uh, ChemChina came in for Syngenta. And Bayer, which was like at the time, if all those companies had been – you know, on their own, Bayer was competitive, but they started piling up and Bayer was kind of an also ran. So they had a choice, stay in agriculture or um, in which case they had to make a move or, you know, focus on pharmaceuticals, which is what a lot of investors had expected. They'd been increasingly focusing on pharma over the previous years. And uh, the expectation was that they're going to continue that and maybe exit agriculture but, uh, in fact, the CEO, Werner Baumann, told investors right before he became CEO, um, don't expect anything revolutionary. And then two weeks into his tenure as CEO, news broke. They're going for buy, or for Monsanto. And so, Tim, I, I feel like I'm channeling uh, our colleague, Joel Weber, who's sitting right here. This is, this is a case study. I mean, this is a business school case study uh, in the making, uh, for sure. It's got to be a cautionary tale for other CEOs, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, it's always, anytime the, there's a, a rich history of German-American combinations that have gone poorly, and this is probably the latest uh, obviously, it's, uh, we're a year in, and while it's very painful for buyer investors right now, buyer management will tell you, you know, we'll, we'll get through this, and it was not a bad idea at the end of the day. But um, it's absolutely a case study, I think. Uh, what you have is buyer sort of, you know, crossing off all the ticking the boxes and saying this is the right move but ignoring uh some of the reality on the ground of of just how how much disliked monsanto was and especially parts of the u.s so uh, underestimating the sort of the the hatred of monsanto i think was maybe the it seems like the the buyer uh, remorse right now, although the CEO still says otherwise. But this is also because of really the legal ramifications that they've inherited. How many different lawsuits are they now facing? So the last figure they gave in early July was 18,400. One assumes now it's probably over 20,000. Um, and just to put that in context, when the deal closed a year ago, it was uh, in the range of five or 6,000. So basically so, it's just ballooned in the time that they've, uh, you know, they, they acquired the company. And the the best guess that we have is like this will all come to a head in a courtroom. It was supposed to do that in August and it got delayed. So are we? What are we thinking now? Yeah. So there's some mediation talks taking place, uh, mandated by the court, um, and so the plaintiff attorneys and the buyer attorneys are meeting. Um, the, as you said, the the next trials that were scheduled have been pushed back to January. Try to buy some more time for some sort of a deal. Uh, everyone is following extremely closely signs that a deal might be reached. Um, if there's a, but now, if, if it doesn't happen in 2019, you're now in a situation where there's a whole pile of trials scheduled for January. And so far, for buyer, they've been unable to win anything in, in court. They're 0 for 3. 
so if you know it gets back to trial and they lose again, it's it's just gonna just gonna add you know more yeah. more leverage to the plaintiff's attorneys. All right, it's a great story, a must read in a sea of must reads, I dare say, in this week's edition of Bloomberg uh, Business Week. A lot of great corporate deep dives. Catch a further conversation uh, that we had with Tim on our weekend show on Bloomberg Business Week tonight at 6 p.m. Wall Street Time on Bloomberg Radio. Watch it all weekend long on Bloomberg Television. Tim Lowe, healthcare reporter over in Munich, and Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine Bloomberg Business Week here in New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Delighted to have back with us Matt Maley. He's Managing Director and Chief Equity Strategist at Miller Tayback on the phone from Newton, Massachusetts. Were you listening to us earlier? Uh, I, I was not able to. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, good. Okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, Carol sort of yada, yada, yada whatever you were going to say, and so she didn't want to offend you, but now I'm just <laughs> Oh, and then I took it back. I took it back really quickly. She did take it back. Well, I basically said what I love, because you are really great about when things are going on in the market, you're shooting us all notes, so it's it's always fun to kind of get your thoughts right away, because you're sitting there, you know, making decisions, talking to your traders yeah. and your desk, so I kind of went blah, 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 but I didn't mean it was blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I thought so, you were going to uh, give me grief because the Red Sox aren't going to make the aren't going to make the playoffs, and the Yankees, you know, finally going to be win something. But who knows? You're going to hurt our producer Paul <laughs> Brennan's feelings. Oh, he says we still have the Patriots. Exactly, Yay. exactly. Yeah, and, and things are going great there. No controversy at all. <laughs> but I'm bum. Uh, hey, about those? How about those Celtics? <laughs> change, yeah, change the subject. Next, ruins are going to be great. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the markets because it was that kind of a week too. Uh, let's talk about the energy market. Uh, no, let's not. Let's talk about the overnight market. Let's talk right. about Fed oh. policy. Um, oh. I don't know. Here we are on Friday. What's the takeaways for you, Matt? Well, I mean, today, of course, you have another one. I mean, it, with this whole thing with the, the, the Chinese delegation uh, leaving early or not, yeah. you know, going to, not going to Montana. The one thing, of course, that stands out, uh, just the initial thought, my thought was, oh, my gosh, you know, I don't, you know, we don't know exactly what happened, why they left early or why they didn't go to, aren't going to Montana. Was something said in there uh, in the negotiations that, that uh, was hawkish and, uh, uh, and tough? And if that's the case, which it seems to be, it, could, it certainly could be, uh, is this another situation where, geez, the Fed cut interest rates and then President Trump decides, oh, great, now I can be more, <laughs> more tough with, with, with China. Uh, he certainly did that in July. It, it, it almost looks like he might be doing that again. If that's the case, uh, you know, we got, we got, you know the, the, the new highs in the market may, may, may take a little bit longer to achieve. So, Matt, one of the questions we've been really trying to ask a, a lot of people is this sort of disconnect it feels like, and maybe it's just a sequential thing, between business confidence and consumer confidence. That businesses repeatedly, CEOs are saying on conference calls, are saying when they speak at conferences that they're being a little bit cautious going into 2020, and yet we have this sense from consumers that I'm going to spend money, I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to go on a trip, I'm going to buy a car. Uh, what 
is there a disconnect there or have consumers just not started feeling some of the pain and the cynicism that businesses already are? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case. I mean, the, the one thing is is that, you know, there's no question there's a disconnect. Uh, whether it's the right one or not is it, hard to know. But, I mean, these, these business leaders, uh, you know, business executives, they're the ones who spend the money, the capital spending, and there's no question that that's, uh, that's down and slowing. And, uh, uh, and they're more worried about looking longer term out. Where a lot of consumers, I'm, I'm sorry to say, uh, more, are more concerned about what, what their present situation is. And uh, they're not looking so, uh, so as far out. I mean, they might be looking a few months out. But uh, these business leaders, they're going to invest that kind of money. It's not just a few dollars here or there. It's going to be a lot of money. Uh, and they're looking out six to 18, uh, I'm sorry, 12 to 18 months. Uh, and the one thing, of course, we can always con- get concerned about is the consumer confidence can turn on a dime, which we saw in the fourth quarter of last year. So it's a, it's a little unsettling. But at the same time, you could have said that any time <laughs> all year long, and the consumer uh, continues to hang in there. Yeah, but do you ever think about, like, how long this economic expansion has gone on, uh, the run-up that we seen in the markets. Does it make sense? Does it feel logical? I mean, I do feel like, you know, we had, you know, almost corrections or we did see market pullbacks and then, you know, we continued our move up. Does it all feel fundamentally supported, Matt, or does it feel a little bit risky? I think it feels a little bit risky. I mean, you just look at the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the you know the economic growth. We're fine, and we're the best in the in the world. But you know the the Atlanta GDP Fed number for the third quarter now is just below two percent. Just below two percent is not a great number, and it's slower than the first half of the year. Um, and again, I don't want to say a disaster, but but the one thing is continues to uh, uh, almost melt down. I don't want to melt down maybe too strong a word, but it was earnings growth. Mm-hmm. I mean, even before this week, consensus earnings growth for, the, for this year is 1.3% for the entire year. And that's before we got some of these uh, uh, fourth quarter uh, uh, warnings from the Federal Express and the U.S. Steel and some of these other companies, uh, Corning, uh, et cetera. So those are going to come down even more. And for next year, what does that mean for next year? And so uh, it, it just wonders, again, I'm not necessarily saying, uh, the market's going to roll over and get clobbered, but it, do, do we really have the support we need uh, to break a new high? I mean, we've made minor new highs, three of them in the last year. None of them has been able to turn into a major, you know, a, a major breakout, and I worry that it's going to be tough to do again this time around. All right, so next week, as you know, Matt, everyone in the world, it feels like, does descend on New York City because it's U.N. General Assembly. You can't go anywhere. Steve Schwartzman takes the subway. Like <laughs> Left is right, right is wrong, upside down. So you have this situation where you've got a lot of world leaders together. This is a week after everything happened in the Middle East with Saudi Arabia and the drone strike. How worried are you about geopolitical risk at this moment? Well, I, I do believe I – know, I know things have calmed down this week in the oil markets, but I do believe that the, uh, the geopolitical risks have, have, have risen significantly. You know, again, I don't want to use uh, – significantly, again, probably too strong a word, but it's, it's, it's certainly grown quite, quite a bit. I mean, the one thing is the intelligence community, and based on everything that I read and, and the people I talk to, uh, they were completely caught off guard, whether it be U.S. intelligence or global intelligence uh, about the, the Iran that had, had these kind of uh, sophisticated weapons to make that kind of a strike. Uh, and yeah. people kind of talk about, oh, it's just a little drone that some kid uses in the backyard. <laughs> I mean, of course, well, that wasn't the case at all. I'll, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning of the week, too. I mean, that terrified me, the thought that their capability to take drones and, you know, where else could they potentially do it or other uh, countries or, you know, groups uh, around the world. That just terrified me, Matt. 
Yeah, and and, and me as well. And and you have, and it really tells you that how vulnerable these things can be. It doesn't. You don't need a great big navy to come in and sh- and yeah. shoot at these uh, facilities. They can do it in, in a much more strategic and sophisticated way. Right. So therefore, I think it has to take the risk premium for oil prices up because it can happen at any time. Well, and I'm just going to do a shameful plug, but uh, the remarks in the magazine this week have to do with how um, the position, the strong position that Iran is, particularly in negotiating with uh, the rest of the world. They don't need that big army. Uh, And in fact, uh, and their capabilities, their military capabilities are definitely kind of putting uh, the global economy potentially at risk. Matt Maley, thank you, thank you. Managing Director, Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tayback & Company, on the phone from Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, great to get his thoughts. Yeah, I would say go Pats, but I'm not going to. Anyway, <laughs> Matt, always great to Wait, catch up did. with you. I know, I know. I just did that for Paul. So I know. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.